0: preparing this the last couple of days, um, was that, this is two sermons. (laughs) I hope you brought your cushions. (laughs) You actually look scared. I'm only joking, okay? (laughs) Um, There's a little device that has been phenomenal in raising money for charity, and it's this. (laughs) Does anyone recognize this? The coin vortex. It's probably got other names, but that's what I call it. And uh, I have to admit, when I see one of these, I kind of turn into an eight-year-old because I get a coin out and you put it on. You watch it spiraling all the way down and it kind of disappears and you get really excited. Or I do, anyway. (laughs) And now what on earth is this about regarding Revelation? Well, we've been saying all along that Revelation is not a sequential chronological chain of events that you've got to tick off along a timeline and go, right, we're there now. That it's more snapshots and images and screens of different uh, scenes that are going on from eternity. But the thing is, this is not just going round and round in circles. It's not just going round and round in circles. Like the coin vortex, it's going somewhere. It's going round and round again. We've looked at the seven trumpets. We've looked at the seven seals. We've looked at um, lots of sevens. We've repeated lots of things because we're looking at them in different details. But it's not that we're going round and round in circles. We're going somewhere. And like the coin in the coin vortex, it eventually comes to a singularity. At the very, very end, and it drops into a very small point. And whenever you look downwards at it, as it goes round and round, you are looking at something the whole time. You're looking at the singularity, the point that it ends in, the apex, the apex of the whole progress. Revelation's going somewhere, and where it's going is here. God wins. Thank you. Charismatics, a lot of you. We may be going round and round and looking at these things, but the thing that we have in focus that we are aiming for is at the center of this, God wins. And it's important that we remember that. So we are approaching what could be described as the, the last stretch. And we know that because, of what, um, because the rota says so, but also, <laughs> um, but also because it says, with these seven plagues, it's the end. Now, the end needs unpackaging, which we'll be doing over the next number of weeks. But it says with this, these last seven, this is the last. So we're going somewhere. And it's we're going somewhere where God wins and he sorts everything out. And this is the beginning of the process where he sorts everything out. And so we're looking at these bowls, the bowls of God's wrath. Now, wrath not a nice word, is it? We're not keen on that. I I look for a really scary font to try and uh, capture that. We don't like the word wrath because it's scary, especially if you say wrath rather than bath. I don't know, wrath. Wrath or wrath. We don't like this, do we? I know some people who when they sing in Christ alone and it sings about God's wrath, they don't sing it because they don't like that thought of God's wrath. And maybe there's something about the image of a God that we've been brought up with. I certainly have some of this in my background, my upbringing, where the emphasis is on the God of wrath who is ready to smite you when you step out of line. Does anyone else share that background, that baggage that God's looking to get you? And he's ready to smite you with the fury and vengeance of his wrath. But we don't like that, do we? Uh, we that's kind of Old Testament God, isn't it? Old Testament, scary, vengeful God. We like the New Testament, cuddly and cute one, don't we? That's not a new phenomenon. In the early church, there was a bloke called Marcion. And Marcion didn't like this Old Testament God either. He thought it was a separate God entirely. And so he rejected the Old Testament. And some of, um, he rejected Matthew's gospels far too Old testament He took out, he edited loads of other gospels and he accepted some of Paul's letters. And in response to that, the church got together and said, okay, what really is the Bible? And that's where we got the Bible kind of that's where it came about the compilation of what was in scripture but he couldn't accept that the god of the old testament and the god of the new testament were the same one because they didn't like this word wrath god's vengeance and stuff but the thing is there is a desperate need to grasp the importance of god's wrath simon Ponceby wrote this. He said, God's judgment is his justice, which is his wrath, which is his love poured out to expunge evil and put everything in order. And Tom Wright writes, not to speak of God's wrath is either to belittle the fact of evil or to imply that God doesn't care about it and has no plans to deal with it. We have to deal with this concept of wrath and judgment (laughs) because deep inside we have a deep sense that we want justice for things. And it's a lesson that we know very, very early on in our lives. As long with it was words that we learned like mommy and daddy and food and PlayStation, um, <laughs> we learned this phrase, "It's not fair. Don't, you know? Our parents are kind of going, boy, do we know that. It's not fair because we have a sense that some things should be fair, that there should be justice. And justice will involve judgment. But the thing is, our world isn't great at that. Our world isn't a great example of justice and judgment. The words it's not fair can be wrung out through many different situations. We talk about people getting their comeuppance, don't we? <laughs> Which is a kind of an old-fashioned word. They'll get their comeuppance, or maybe if you're more kind of spiritually woo-woo, you talk about karma. You get what you deserve. You know, whenever someone who's worked many years and low-paid job to look after their family and other people's families and works 95 hours a day and then they win the lottery, people go, oh, they deserve it. But then the sponger who doesn't do much, who was a bit of a drug taker, they win the lottery. Oh, such a shame, they didn't deserve that. Don't deserve it. We have a sense of justice and we like to see justice done. It's not just about those positive things like maybe winning a prize of some sort. What about heinous crimes? When they happen, we want to see justice. We want to see justice done. But what happens when karma doesn't work? Or what happens when comeuppance doesn't happen? When the wicked prosper and the innocent suffer? When God's people come off second best? When the cry for justice from those who are in power, falls on deaf ears because they're the ones who are the producers of injustice. What happens then when people have to cry out to God? They have to cry out to God. And we hear this loads of times in the Psalms. Psalm 13 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? forever? Throughout loads of the Psalms, it talks about complaining that the wicked are winning. Why, God? Why don't you sort it out? Please sort it out. Psalm 35, Psalm 37, Psalm 43, 53, 54, and 94. And that was just a couple of minutes looking ones up. There is a cry of the heart. God, would you please sort out this mess? Because we want to see justice and judgment done. And Revelation 6.10 talks about the prayer of the innocent victim, the innocent martyr. And the cry is, how long, oh God, how long will goodness and beauty, life and innocence be violated by aggressive self-interest? And there is a delay. God delays and delays. And a few weeks ago, we looked at the reason why he delays, because he desperately wants people to respond, both to his love and being nice to people, but also he'll use a stick as well and say, these are the consequences of your bad choices. And even here, in the last seven plagues that are being poured out, People are not repenting, but I get the feeling if they did, God would say, yes, come in. You are forgiven, but people are choosing not to instead to curse God. He's desperate, and that's why there's a delay. That's why we cry out, how long until judgment and justice comes? And this cry out to God for justice are the echoes of Exodus through the years. And Exodus is a motif throughout the entirety of Revelation, but deliverance, freedom, so there's a cry for God's judgment, and we look at Revelation 15 and notice that the cry for God's judgment and God's judgment itself comes from a place of worship. The martyrs are singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb, a song of deliverance. And the chorus rings out here and elsewhere in chapter 16 these sentiments Lord God, true and just are your judgments. Your judgments are true, your ways are just. But we have a problem with judgment, don't we? It's not very PC. We don't do judgment. We may not agree with it. Okay, God, but you know, mm, I'm not too sure about that. Because we live in an age of public opinion, don't we? We live in an age where vocal public opinion is definitely heard. We live in the age of a rejection of authority, of a distrust of the expert. Who here watches Strictly Come Dancing? Go on, admit it. I have, on occasion, stumbled across Strictly Come Dancing. Um, And I've watched a bit of it. Now, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, there is a panel of expert judges who've had years of dancing choreography experience, dancers themselves, they have years of knowledge and they judge the dancers in front of them, don't they, and they give them seven, all that stuff, yeah? Yeah, that's only half the mark. The other mark comes from what? The public vote. The public that has got even more dance experience than those who've done it for a lifetime of occupation. But it's worth just as much because the public opinion matters. And the thing is, with miscarriages of justice that we've seen over the years, we even maybe distrust the criminal justice system of our own country and, and around our world. When we see injustices around the world, it erodes our trust. And so my question is, do we extend that distrust to God? And here's the question, do we trust God to do the right thing? Do we trust God to do the right thing? Because I think sometimes we don't. And how we test that as we read about some of the atrocities that happen in, in the Bible, and particularly these plagues or the, the, the wrath and judgments that come out. And they're really harsh. And I wonder if our global peace, everybody's nice ideals, when we hear this, we go, God, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? You're being a bit harsh there, God, come on. I'm sure they're nice. Do we trust God enough to make the right decisions? Yes, of course we do, as long as we agree with them. Because <laughs> we know better, don't we? I'm not so sure. We have a privilege of, um, of leading funerals for people. And I know um, from experience in a number of different situations that a, a question has been asked to me in different contexts, but the same question is this. My loved one's passed away. Where are they now? Are they in heaven or hell? Can you tell me? And what do you do with that? If you hold a certain view of evangelism and evangelical belief, what do you do with that? I have come up with the best response, which is an ultimate (laughs) cop-out. They are in God's hands. It's a cop-out, but it's a thoughtful one. Because I'm in no place to judge. I stand under judgment like anyone else. I don't have the capacity to make that kind of judgment. I know what the Bible says about how to be certain of a relationship with God in eternity is to have a relationship with God now. But I'm not gonna judge someone here on earth and say they're in and they're out. Because I don't know. I don't know. Now, I have to give a warning here. I am going to talk about rugby. In a rugby match on television, sometimes a try is scored. <laughs> said anything. And sometimes there's doubt over that try. And so what does the referee, who's there on the spot, what does he do? Because he can only see a whole pile of bodies. And so what does he do? He goes to the TMO, the television match official, who sits there and has got loads of camera angles. And then eventually they see... Ian Henderson, put the ball down over the try line. Oops. People are walking out already. Um, no, it's just serious. They need to see all the angles to know what is true, what is real, what is fact, and what is not. The thing is, God sees all the angles. God is omniscient. He knows all things. It's not that he'd be a great asset to any quiz team. It's more than that. He knows every action. He knows all attitudes. He knows all intentions of the hearts. He knows all causes of people's actions. We talk about the fact that often perpetrators of crimes and of sins and of heinous behavior are often victims of the similar crime. He knows what causes people to do the things they do. And he is not fooled. He's not one of those people who could be duped with the wool over his eyes. If someone said, I'm going to become a Christian on my deathbed, and it'll be all right. Do whatever I want, and then it'll be all right. God is not fooled. It says that he cannot be mocked. He knows the intentions of our hearts. He knows all things. He's got all the angles covered. But he's also all loving. He's also all powerful, and he is also all holy. Notice the bowls of God's wrath, of his judgment. Where do they come from? They come from the tabernacle, they come from the place that is filled with the smoke of his presence, his glory, where no one can go because it is so holy. His judgments are just and they are true. I trust God's judgments because I want a God who judges. I want a God who I can rely on to judge rightly, even if I don't understand I stand before his judgment too, for I play my part in the sinfulness and the hurt of others. But I thank God that I stand judged, but I stand judged with one who stood in my place and did the sentence for me. If this God doesn't hate evil and act upon it, then he's not good, he's not just, and he's not holy. But if this God doesn't do something about it, then he's not love. And the thing is, he did. We're looking at these seven bowls. We're going to look at them in detail. We're going to look at them as a broad sweep. We look at bowls 1 to 4, and we see that the bowls 1 to 4 are the angels pouring out God's wrath and His judgment onto the land, onto the sea, onto the rivers, and onto the sun. These are but ecological consequences. Now, I'm not necessarily, you know, fly-the-flag tree-hugging kind of person. But I think we have a responsibility for our world. But the thing is, Our planet, our people, our humanity hasn't carried that out. And so nature and creation is passing judgment on humanity whose responsibility for the stewardship has been abandoned for the use, the abuse, the excess, and the exploitation of the world's resources. Hasn't it? And what we see increasingly are the consequences of the abuse and excess of using our world for which we were meant to be responsible for. What we see increasingly in this world, I think is an indicator of a hurting world, but a world that is also hurtling towards a climax point of history. We are in the last days because we have been since the resurrection, but I think that we are getting closer and closer because we're seeing things fall apart more and more on a global scale. Paul writes about creation groaning all is not well in the earth. So therefore, this planet, ecology, is a Christian concern. But still, people don't repent. And they curse God for what's happening. Then bowl five is poured out on the throne of the beast, the heart of his kingdom. Bowl six is poured out on the Euphrates, the river which, uh, which is in the very, it's like the lifeblood of the Middle East in that area and it's been a natural defense against the powers of the kingdoms of the east but when the river dries up it's like a highway for them and so the kings of the east are threatening to come this strange alien force are coming coming towards that kind of central place and the unholy trinity lisa spoke about the unholy trinity last week They make an appearance and evil spirits come out of their mouth, out of the dragon, out of the beast, out of the false prophet. And they spread rumors, they spread deceptions, they do miracles in order to entice the rest of the kings of the world to come to the same place. And what we call Armageddon happens. This is not a Bruce Willis movie. It is also not necessarily the end of the world. It's not a nuclear explosion. Armageddon Means the hill of Megiddo. And it's a real place. Unfortunately, there's no hill. (laughs) It's a plain, it's a valley, it's a crossroads. Megiddo, this um, area, was the crossroads of the trade routes in the Middle East. But it was also one of the best known battle sites. It's a real place, and over 4,000 years, these are the peoples who have fought battles there. The Egyptians, the Israelites, the Greeks, the Muslims, the Crusaders, the Mongols, the British, the Germans, the Arabs, and the Israelis. This is a place of battle. This is a place of war. This is a place of clashing of nations. It's a place that a climactic battle will happen. It seems it's apt to. But did you notice in verse 15, there's a little bit of a breakaway. In the midst of all this dread and horror, Jesus speaks, keep calm, I'm on my way back. I'm coming soon, I'm coming. Stay with me, stay awake, I'm coming. The earth battles kings of the west and kings of the east, inspired by the unholy trinity. Remember that in any war, between A and B, east, west, north, south, arms dealers can supply both sides. And the enemy that we fight against is the arms dealer. Entices those from the east, entices those from the west, because sin, evil, is a self-destructive force. In, in, the, 80s, in the 70s, 80s, there was the Cold War, and there was a the threat of nuclear disaster. One word prevented that happening. It's the word Mad. I know it seems apt, doesn't it? MAD stands for mutually assured destruction. That if one person launched a nuclear weapon, the other side would as well. And tit for tat, the world would be destroyed. It was the thing that stopped nations doing that. But that is what's going to happen. The kingdoms of the earth that follow the beast are mutually assured their destruction. They will fight one another because they both serve the beast. But then the seventh bowl is poured out into the air, the place between the heavens and the earth, the place of spirits, ideologies, philosophies, and a voice cries out from the throne, it is done. Now, I think you've heard that somewhere before we said at the very outset of the series that the cross is not just a historical event, it's an eternity event, and it echoes across past, present, future. And here it is echoing from the voice of a man on a Roman cross crying out, it is done. The wrath of God is satisfied. And creation quakes at the sound of it. And within this, within this devastation, John is invited to go and have a look at a beauty. And we look at the beauty now in chapters 17 and 18. I'm so pleased that Lisa and I don't need to submit our timetables and diaries to like Baptist Union or even to the diaconate because Lisa spent some time with the Antichrist. And this week I've spent most of my week with the Whore of Babylon. Not looking so good, really, is it? (laughs) These are highly symbolic caricatures that John is painting. Um, Flannery O'Connor. Um, she's a writer. She writes some bizarre characters in her stories. And she was asked why she does this. She said, For the near blind, you have to draw simple, large caricatures. So we have Babylon, the mother of prostitutes. And she wears her name with bold audacity. I am a queen. I am not a widow. I'm going to survive. She is resplendent in scarlet and purple and dripping with jewels and riches. I did a Google search with some trepidation for the words, whore of Babylon. There was sweat dripping off as I clicked search. But actually, it was not too bad. It wasn't too dodgy. I was surprised, it wasn't too dodgy. What it was, was rubbish. This was one of the best pictures. Lego! <laughs> the rest of them were downright ugly. Because the problem is, Babylon is beautiful. Babylon is attractive. Babylon puts on a good show. She looks great. I had a friend, I'm sure I've told you this before, a friend growing up, a girl called Kiri. And Kiri was an absolute down um witch. She was a black coven witch. She became a Christian. Amazing story of her testimony. And she told me this fact. She said, You know, Phil, Satan's beautiful. He's very attractive. Otherwise, why would we not give him the temptation? He spreads a rumor that he has a pitchfork and horns so people will leave him alone. That's what Steve Turner writes. Babylon is attractive, enticing, seductive, appealing, desirous, and tempting. And the kings and rulers and authorities of the earth have literally got into bed with her. And their peoples have been lured into her arms. And she drinks from a golden cup. I wonder if this is the same cup that God gives her. If you look in chapter 16, it says God gives her the gold, a cup filled with the fury of his wrath. He's not happy with this woman this image within this golden cup it says are abominations if you want to get the feel of it tom wright talks about it. he says within this cup this golden beautiful cup there is blood there is dung there is urine and that's not even scratching the surface of how abominable john's trying to get this across of what is putrid in this beautiful cup jesus spoke about it as well whitewashed tombs She may seem a beauty, but scratch beneath the surface. Look a bit closely and see the truth. She is a whore. She deals in fantasies and falsehoods. I have a friend who's been to Las Vegas, and he said, as soon as you say Las Vegas, you think of the bright lights, the strip, and all the casinos, it's wonderful. He said, you go one street behind those, and it's a dump, it's a dive, deprivation, drugs, it's horrible. Well, that's not the picture that you're painted, is it? Scratch beneath the surface and you realize that she is but a dark parody of the bride of Christ. We talked about parodies last week, Lisa did. She is a parody of the bride of Christ. She is the mother of prostitutes because everything she offers comes at a cost. And this is not just about sexual immorality. So who is Babylon? We need to go back many thousands of years to Genesis chapter 11 when people decide that they're really clever and they stop using pitch and straw and they start using bricks and they build cities. They develop civilization and they said, well, let's build a tower. Let's build a tower right up to the heavens because we are like really clever, aren't we? Babel, and babylon which follows is the ultimate example of human self-fulfillment and eventually human attempted human self-deification we can become gods we can reach heaven by ourselves is that not a lie that we are taught these days we can do it ourselves we don't need the church we don't need god we just need to find our inner selves we can do it ourselves what was the one of the original temptations in the garden of eden Satan says to Adam and Eve, you bite this apple, you'll be like a god. The foundations of Babel, the foundations of Babylon is a symbol of rebellion and independence against God. It became a city, it became a state, it became a nation, it became an enemy of Israel. Assyria, which was one of the big superpowers, it took over Israel when it split Israel and Judah. It took the northern kingdom and then Babylon came and it took Assyria. And then, under Nebuchadnezzar, it took its eyes towards uh, Judah and Jerusalem. And the prophet said, change your ways or Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and get you. And they didn't, so he came and he got them. And so we have the exile. Defeat and exile of the Israelite dream. And the Old Testament prophets, they predict Babylon will fall. And it did. It fell to the Medes and then to the Persians. And then after the Persians, the Greeks came along. And then after the Greeks, another stereotypical aspect of Babylon that arrives is Rome. The glory and squalor of Rome. And this is where the first readers of Revelation are slap bang in the middle of it. They relate to the fact that Babylon is a code for Rome. It's what they identify with, and in more specific, we didn't read it, but it says about the seven. It sits, Babylon sits on the beast with seven heads. Seven heads are the seven hills. Rome sits on seven hills. It fits. But remember, with prophecy, biblical prophecy, it's multiple peaks of the same mountain. We reach one peak, we get to the top, we see there's another peak, and it's fulfilled, and it's fulfilled, and it's fulfilled again, until ultimate fulfillment at the end of time. And so Rome is the pinnacle of glory. But even Rome falls. And then it's taken over by a thing called Christendom. And it looks like the church is doing well. It's in charge. But think of the atrocities that the church did. We really messed up because we had a great deal of power and influence. And during that time, we have the Ottoman Empire. We're doing, like, 2,000 years in a couple of seconds. We have the Ottoman Empire. We have Islam. Then we have a reformation against them. But then we have the voyages of discovery. And we have Spain and France and England and Holland spreading their kingdoms and their territories for more and more lands. And then as we go on further, we have Napoleonic reign. And then we have herself. Victoriana, Britannia victorious throughout the entire world. And then we have at the same time, we have Prussia and the Tsarist Russia. And then from this, we have war. And from war, we develop another Rome, which is another Babylon. We have the Nazi empire using iconography which is very similar to all that's gone before and when that falls we have these things that arise we have communism come to the fore we have capitalism and the rise of the united states so capitalism and capitalist democracy seems like the biggest movement at the time but actually we're changing to another one we're in the midst of a cultural flux to a thing called globalism where we're all part of the one big thing and if you go against it then you're in trouble all this can be summed up in one word, empire. Empire. The story of accumulation of power and often by the subjugation of people. It's the commodification of creation. This is why Babylon is a prostitute. Relationships, resources, people themselves are commodities to be used and traded. Babylon commercializes our greatest needs and it renames our worst human traits. Pride, lust, envy, greed and anger renames these worst traits as our rights and our desires. Notice, if you read the rest of the chapter, and I encourage you to read the rest of those chapters, who is it that mourns the fall of Babylon? It's the kings who have adultery with her. And it's the merchants. And you read the list of all the things that they have, the list of trade items, of luxury goods, of excess, of splendor. And what's at the end of that list? Have a look. It's verse 13 of chapter, 18, chapter seventeen. 17. What's at the end of that list? People. Empires are built on slavery of some sort. Always have done, always will be. It just may have a different name. Workforce is another name for it. Slavery is the lifeblood of any empire. And we see it in the atrocities of the slave trade that we saw in the 19th century and before. The hidden slave trade that Our very own Lara Bundock is involved in trying to redress the balance of. But what about the the slavery that we kind of can get all engaged with? The slavery to the acquisition of excess and therefore we need more jobs in order to fulfill the things that we need. Rob Bell writes in his book how um, young people go to buy the trainers that are worn by the star whose music is promoted by the same company that makes the movie that owns the company that makes the drink that has the container which shows the artist on the front of it sporting the t-shirt of the company which is trying to promote the team that is promoted by the original company and it's just a mess. Because that is empire. And in the midst of this empire, these are the key words. Come out of her, my people. So that you'll not share in her sins. You'll not share in her punishments. Notice if God's saying, come out of her, it means that we must be in her. And throughout the entirety of human history, God's people have been within empire. Even when they've run it, it's not been a great success. Within empire, God calls out, come out of her, open your eyes, don't be deceived, don't play her game, don't be lulled by her enticing siren-like song. You have some dangerous choices to make. And I want to ask this question, are you aware of the Babylon in which you are living? Because we are living in a Babylon and we need God to open our eyes to see it. Because if we don't see it, we won't make the choices that we need to make. But let me tell you, the choices that we need to make living in this Babylon might mean the spilling of blood, both literal and metaphorical. Because she dines on the blood of those who are followers of Jesus. Come out because empires always fall. Because she sits on a beast and the beast does not share his glory. The beast turns on the prostitute. Empire. Evil, sin is always self-destructive. And the history retells that Babylon fell only to rise again with a different name. This emblematic symbol of empire and human progress. It keeps on rejuvenating itself. And then at some point, at that singularity that we talked about from the spiraling coin, God says enough. And Babylon will fall And will not rise. She will be thrown with a boulder like a millstone into the sea. Now that reminds me of something. Jesus was talking about children. In Matthew chapter 18. And he said. Anyone who causes any of these children. And we are children. Anyone who causes these children to sin. Will have a millstone tied around their neck. And thrown into the depths of the sea. God's not happy with Babylon. Babylon has hurt his people and he's out with judgment. Let's go back to the sparrow. Because without giving the game away too much, (laughs) beginning of chapter 19, there is one word. In response to everything that's happened. And it's the word. Hallelujah. Because. God wins. Hallelujah. Amen. Sarah.